The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the Land of the Unsolved. Welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved. The podcast explores both the evidence and the politics of unexplained murders in Baltimore. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or leave a review. You can also support us by clicking on the support button on our Anchor homepage. Today, we are going to return to a case that continues to defy any sense of certainty and has become completely intertwined with the politics of policing in Baltimore. We're talking about the death of Detective Sean Souter, who was shot in an alley in West Baltimore almost a year ago, but whose case remains unsolved. A recent report by the IRB, a group of former Baltimore homicide detectives who, along with others, examined the evidence, reached a conclusion that Souter more than likely killed himself. But there continue to be doubts in the community, skepticism rooted in revelations that Souter had ties to members of the Gun Trace Task Force, a corrupt unit that robbed residents, dealt drugs, and stole overtime. As Tay and I have continued to report on this story for both the Afro and the Real News Network, it is clear that the community believes that a broader and deeper conspiracy may lie behind Souter's sudden demise. In fact, for many of the residents we've spoken to, this case represents just how deeply entrenched mistrust of this department is and how the murky circumstances surrounding his death speak to their general sense police in Baltimore are simply corrupt. Just one note, before we begin our discussion with our guest who has done a painstaking investigation of his death, we continue to work on our series on the death of Jody Le Cornu, the 24-year-old Baltimore County resident who was shot to death in a parking lot in 1996. There have been new developments in the case since our first episode aired, including an anonymous donor who has pledged $100,000 for evidence that leads to a conviction in her case. But as we prepare the next episode in her series, we felt compelled to talk to our next guest, who has done some detailed and compelling work on the evidence related to Souter's death. Her name is Justine Barron. Justine is an investigative journalist, a screenwriter, and a nonprofit consultant. She co-hosted the podcast Undisclosed, The Killing of Freddie Gray, and she has recently written a six-part series for the Jewish Journal about Souter's death. Justine, thank you for joining us. Um, first of all, I'm just curious, you know, why you decided to, you know, I read your series, it was great, but what, what made you decide to devote so much time to this particular case? Like, what attracted you to it? 
Well, um, when it first happened, I think a lot of us that had worked on Freddie Gray or that were still analyzing the department, keeping an eye on them after the gun trace task force, saw a lot of um, similarities to previous cases, like mm -hmm. Freddie Gray, Keith Davis Jr., where the stories we were being told didn't quite add up. There seemed to be a lot of politics to it. And actually, uh, what first drew me to it was um, I downloaded all of the dispatch audio from uh, Broadcastify, and I had a friend who was recording from the live scanner and so immediately when I put that together I noticed things that didn't add up for me and I specifically noticed things that were not what was being shared in press conferences and, and to media. So what were those things initially that from the from the broadcast? Well, the, uh, the first thing I would say is that it was very strange immediately that nobody at the scene could figure out if shots came from the alley or came from a mm -hmm. window. Right. And the reason that that's crazy to me is because it had been clear from the dispatch audio that his partner, Bomenka, David Bomenka, at the, that day, had been there with those people. What we found out later was that he was there the whole time. He had literally nothing to share whatsoever at all. But then later that day, he had one report of somebody with... Um, so like what you're a, saying, just so I understand, so people can understand, you're saying that during the period of time when, when it was being called in, he didn't share anything with the dispatcher? He didn't share... No, sorry. Um, and I'll go back to that. He didn't yeah. share anything with the arriving officers. Oh, I see. Okay. So by the so it was silent. It was, it was very strange, because normally, if you just think about it normally, like a partner gets shot. Hey, I'm at this corner. This is happening. This is happening. I heard chats from... You know, you have things to say. And then right. even Otter, that later we were hearing he had... Um, he had a visual on a possible suspect, and it wasn't, and it wasn't even the same visual that was provided on the dispatch. So it was mm -hmm. very confusing. Another thing that really struck me is that um, his 911 call uh, was was transmitted by the dispatcher as him saying that he was off duty. Right. And I thought that was huh. crazy. L let me ask That's you a question: When you analyze 911 and, and his calls, did he ever mention this? black suspect with a white stripe does he ever mention that in his calls so we don't have the 911 call and i would say if there's if i have a wish list that's number one on my list right. i want right. to hear the 911 call what i have is the dispatcher calling out the signal 13 and when she called out the signal 13 which means officer in distress mm -hmm. she said uh it comes in as a off-duty officer mm. now does that mean she got it right not necessarily however right. I also noticed that they had taken the 911 calls off of the public database. Um, oh. And meanwhile, they weren't, so, so they said, we want the public's help to identify a possible mm -hmm. killer, but they wouldn't tell us what time it happened. Right, it's really interesting, right. yeah. Mm. And I mean, you know, they, that, that story became so fundamental to Davis's narrative, as you point out, about the young, or the, we don't know what age, African-American male with a, wearing a jacket with a white stripe, but the origin or the, where that story came from is very difficult to trace, right? Well, so um, on the dispatch, Bomenka's first kind of appearance is about 10 minutes after the shooting. He's at the hospital and he's being interviewed. Somebody reports him saying um, that there was a suspect with a knit cap. It's a completely different... Wow. wow, that's so a very I have, different description. I have literally no idea where the next one came from. Right, um, where that, where that, where that description of a possible suspect we don't know. Yes. So number two on my wish list after the nine one one call is to see the transcripts of all of Bomenka's different interviews. Right. <laughs> because yeah, be I really think that would be very interesting. It could be kind of like Jay Wilds in uh, um, Serial, where like once you heard Jay Wilds actually being interviewed by, sorry, yeah. but with Adnan Syed, once you heard the actual interview, it was completely different from what the police had said. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to. That's... You want to ask a question about oh. what we know about Bomenka? No, about what we know about Bomenka. Like, what do we know about him, right? Well, that's that's actually a really good point. I was wondering what we actually do know about Bomenka. He wasn't supposed to be his partner that day. Is that correct? Um, well, we know that Bomenka's not a rookie, and he was kind of almost marketed that way initially. Mm -hmm. He was somewhat new to homicide. So our first reports were that Souter brought him along that day, that his normal partner is Jonathan Jones. Now, homicide detectives, as I'm sure you know, don't have fixed partners. No, not at all. Yeah. He had his buddy, which was Jonathan Jones. So um, the story that initially came out was that um, Bomenka joined him on a case he was investigating from a couple years, a triple homicide right. from the year before. In that and, same neighborhood, supposedly? Yes, in, on in that. In Bennett Place, and yeah. But then there, if you listen very carefully, I, I sort of tore apart all of uh, Commissioner, then Commissioner Kevin Davis's press conferences. Right. At one point, Davis says, well, we, Bomenka was actually there investigating his own case. Hmm. It's like, hmm, what? And then more recently, WMIR released information suggesting that they were both right. there investigating Bomenka's case. So honestly, hmm. who knows? Right. Right. That's a good point. So there's an interesting thing you bring up. Um, oh, in relation to Souter being self-directed. Now, some people who are advocates of the theory that Souter killed himself say that that would only be possible if he was self-directed that day, if he was in charge of his own schedule. Was he in charge of his schedule that I mean, day? What, do you, what have you found on that? I have no idea. Yeah, I, I would know. just say when I hear this many contradictory reports, and even WMAR finally did release something suggesting that he was uh, at the last minute joining Bomenka. Right. I just don't know what to believe. I've seen forged I'm sorry, I've seen forged documents. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's such a critical question. I mean, it's possible he could have gotten there and said, you know, I'm just going to kill myself right here, right now. But it would much more bolster the suicide theory if he was self-directed, if he had chosen this spot or was familiar with mm -hmm. it. And I think that's a absolutely. real weird question that they can't answer. I mean, I, I read in your piece you said he might have put an entry in Lotus Notes, or was that from your piece? Or? So actually what it was is Justin Fenton asked Davis. Um, Davis was saying uh, there's no evidence that this was planned or that anybody knew that he was going to be there. Interesting. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, first of all, if you were there 20 minutes before, people knew you were there because right. everything's on dispatch. Absolutely. But um, And so Fenton asked him, I've heard that in the Lotus Notes, he said he was going to go back the next week. And um, I asked Fenton, Fenton just had a sort I, I would say that a lot of the people that were sourcing Fenton, Jane Miller, they, mm -hmm. they might not have been always telling. I know they weren't always telling the truth because they describe things in the video that aren't right. there. Does it, so. mm -hmm. um, oh, did you want to ask something? Um, wait, I was just thinking of something. Oh, so that's really interesting because you make a good point. Like one of the things about Freddie Gray that was very interesting about your reporting and other people's was that, you know, you you have to dispatch like if you're going to get out of your car if you see something was there any dispatch before him where they said hey we spot we're going to investigate this mail and was there anything to indicate that i i don't remember anything but for sean Suter, yeah um i haven't heard anything what, right but, but you have to remember we don't have the full dispatch they do right and, and so they that, have not released it yeah so think about right. what's not being shared the right. irb has almost no dispatch calls mentioned wow that seems like a big omission. Um, I think one of the reasons they omitted it is because my my perception of the dispatch is that, you know, it, it's not helpful to that story. And then the other is because they were trying to um, say that the audio and video weren't in sync. But we can come back to that later. But mm -hmm. um, so there's no dispatch calls mentioned. They would have a dispatch report, at least. And mm -hmm. somebody would have the audio of every call Suter made that day. Wow. And he had his radio. Wow. Yeah, he had his radio. So he had his radio. So that's interesting. So... Um, so there's a lot of discussion about the ballistics. Can you talk to me about what you found? Yeah, I mean, most of the work I did on ballistics was to just call. Can I 
curse or no? <laughs> yeah, you can curse. Yeah, you can curse yeah, on yeah. this one. Yeah. yeah. It was just to call bullshit on everything we yeah, were being fine. told. That was my job <laughs> as I saw it. Because um, you know, it's really interesting how this happened. We we had heard from the beginning he was shot with his own gun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there was this sort of um, interesting, highly suspicious discovery of the bullet in one very... <laughs> I love the way, you know, and when you described it that way, I mean, just so people know, WBAL-TV was there shoot, shooting the video when they discovered the bullet, almost as if it was like, let's wait till there's a TV camera. And you point that out, I think, in your story, right? And that was a great thing to point out because that did seem a little staged, you know, the way they found the bullet. They had a TV camera and no crime scene unit. So you're going to go back to the crime scene that they scrubbed for four days. And and their theory was, well, we, we got the autopsy result and the trajectory told us where the bullet would be. Well, he was shot somewhere on the side of his head and they dug a tiny hole. It's just, <laughs> like every cop I've talked to has said yeah. that. So between that and then that everyone was buying into him being shot with his own weapon... I actually, what happened was somebody sent me, a former homicide detective said, read this. I was getting some bizarre emails, um, but it was, uh, read this, and it was Torbett, William Torbett, had been shot um, in a shootout. Right, And the same team that did the IRB investigated Mm -hmm. that. Yes. And they said, Baltimore police bullets cannot be matched to Baltimore police guns. Because they were using Glocks or something? Or? Yeah. yeah. The Glock doesn't match easily. Just one note. So William Tort was a police officer who was shot by his own cops. Four cops shot him to death outside a nightclub in Baltimore in 2010. It became a pretty controversial case. I'm just letting people know so they know what tour is like. Of course, definitely. Because I can... But, but, so um, yeah. I started from there and I was like, wow, there may be more to this ballistics. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I interviewed three ballistics experts, and they ripped apart everything that was being reported in the Baltimore Sun, even by WBAL, about a gun being under the body indicating suicide. Mm-hmm. All three of them said, no way. They all said, what did they, let's clarify that. They said that that's not indicative of, suicide, of anything. anything. Of anything. It's just the gun's under his body, but it doesn't mean suicide. That's it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. That um, he wouldn't be gripping a gun or a radio if he'd been standing when he was shot in the head mm-hmm. because you lose control over your hands, which is sort of, we, we do learn that in school. And um, that the the Baltimore Sun reported that the gun was um, heating or uh, right. freshly fired. Freshly fired, yeah. And that's also in the IRB. And they said maybe if he was the Las Vegas shooter and had just shot 500 right. people. So mm-hmm. it all, even the shell casings, there were some poking hole in whether or not you can match that to one specific lock. So, mm-hmm. I mean, given that, you know, that a big majority of the case for suicide rests on the fact that he shot himself with his own gun. Is there any evidence that someone else shot him with his own gun? Or is, is it possible he shot with another gun? No idea. Yeah, okay. I really don't. All, the, the the only thing I could say for sure is what I see on the video. And, you mm-hmm. know, obviously, hopefully we'll talk about that. Yeah, And what I hear on the audio. Well, wasn't there a mention um, that I think you uncovered this in the last pages of the IRB report that there was other DNA evidence on the gun? So that's been brought up recently. The IRB said that there was no traceable. So that left open that there could have been other DNA. And and some of right now there's been sort of a push among Suter's team to go back towards not suicide. Mm-hmm. And they they think the fact that there was other DNA on the gun is a big deal. I'm not sure that gun was thrown in the back of a car. Like mm-hmm. I'm not personally convinced that that means right. much. That's a good point. I I don't necessarily think it means that we could that there's we know that there's another killer. I, I don't know. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so you took a really deep look at the video after the IRB report. What did you find? 
a whole hell of a lot, and it took a really <laughs> long time to find it. So I, I, I expect if you watch it on your first, it, it, it was very hard to find, and it was very hard to try to show other people. Yeah, it's not a good, just so people know, if you look at it, it is not clear video to begin with. It's It's murky. a bit blurry. It's and blurry, a little murky. murky. I don't yeah. know what to describe, just so people understand. It's really, it's really hard. So they have the distance, which is, and then there's they have a close-up. And so I was... Can I ask you one question? Yeah. That's from the back entrance of the alley, right? Not the front of... It's actually way down the street. Um, right, and they're shooting into where that back entrance is, where you go back up. If it's, I don't know if it's I don't back. I think there's entrance. a back or front. It's the Bennett Place entrance. Bennett Place entrance. Okay, yeah. got it. All right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, if I can, I'll just go through. There's Absolutely. a few main main findings that I discover Certainly. in the video. Um, I guess the most important is that uh, we've been told he ran into. He was seen on the video running into an alley, where something happened that we don't know. Either somebody got his gun and shot him, or he shot himself. That's right. like very fundamental to this case. He ran into the vacant lot. And if you look at it from even there close up, it does seem like all of a sudden he sort of seems to run to the left. So I worked with um, you know Amelia McDonald Perry, mm-hmm. who did the Freddie Gray podcast with me. And we downloaded the video, we put it in iMovie. This is actually very easy, anybody can do it. And you just have to do close up, um, you have to do high contrast and slow motion. And you can see he doesn't run into the alley on the video. He collapses, and he collapses like 90 degrees his head. What happens after that, I can't tell you, because he he sort of seems to fall behind a car. The reason it looks from further away like he's running into the alley is because there's another figure running, and it's not Bomenka, because Bomenka's a white figure in the back, and it's a dark figure. That so is he, huge. So he collapses before he gets in. According to what you've seen, he collapses before he gets into the alley. It's in full view of Bomenka. It's in full view of the camera. It's You can actually see it head first just go down. Wow. It's crazy. So he yeah, collapses. I, I just want to get this straight because <laughs> you're kind of blowing my mind right now. You're saying he collapses before he gets into the alley. So that implies that his body must have been moved into that So I, I, that don't, I can't make any leaps. But I'm, not, is, I'm not asking you to make a leap. But I can help leap. you with that. Okay, I can thank t- you. help you with how that happened because there's more on the video. So the other thing that I did, the second most important thing I think, was there was this audio, and Commissioner Davis, I think he was right to say it sounds like distress and gunshots. Mm-hmm. The IRB said... We got no idea what this is. But they admitted that it came from Souter's radio, and they admitted that it happened around that time. Here's the weird thing. The, the so-called dashing into the alley, the collapse happens at 4.36.10 seconds. Mm-hmm. The audio, the last call, 4.36.10. I lined them up, and he falls. And there's another figure, by the way, that Amelia figured out, because you know they kind of, I believe they blurred that area, mm-hmm. that... If he's falling and then there's a sh- and then there's a shout and shots, this is all happening at the same time. What did the IRB say? They're off sync. Why did they say that they were off sync? They needed it to be off sync. Right. They needed him to be able to go in the alley, kneel down, put his radio down on the ground, and accidentally trigger it. Right. It's basically what they said. Right. <laughs> Something but you're like that. saying that maybe he fell. Or he was going down, he hit his radio and he's in distress. That that's a possible explanation. It adds up for me. It adds up a lot better than anything else because it's his last call and then there's another gunshot. It does look like he's collapsing. He was attacked or he was threatened. He goes down. Yeah. And, and that would also explain one of the big things I had is his radio is supposed to be in his hand. But I don't know if you're standing. It, so the to go back to your question about being moved, this is, I think... Everything I'm proposing, you could say, well, I don't see what you see on the video. I think he's running. Well, I can't argue with what's in your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. But I could tell you there's a moment. So if you read the IRB, what you learn is that Bomenka 
fled across the street, and you could see him run, called 911, and you could see that there's a 911 call around that time, and then crossed back when other cops came to the scene. Not at all. He crosses back two minutes earlier. You can see him cross back. You can see him, a car comes up the street. He stops the car before the lot so it can't see anything, sends it all the way, one way, back down the street, and he enters the crime scene. And no cops arrive for another minute and a half. So the pictures of the body cam of him kind of descending on the body, that was kind of staged to a certain extent? Well... Have you seen those body cam pictures? Oh, yeah, definitely. And they they actually proved that the audio and video were well lined up because they're lined up to the video. So it's really crazy for the IRB to say that it's off sync. But what I was going to say is... um, I don't know what's staged. Maybe he crossed the street and then hid. I'm not going to say yeah. he entered the crime scene. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that we no longer can ensure that what they caught on the on the um, body camera is a pure crime scene because we have evidence that he was headed that way. So it's possible he could have been in the crime scene, gone back out, and then you know come back when the cops showed up. We don't see him come back out. We see uh, the cops show up. And then he comes after the cops. We no, just don't, we don't know. We don't see. We don't know. We don't see. He might have been off to the side. One of the problems is that those those arriving officers, that first one in particular, Santiago, mm-hmm. I believe, he shows up. You see him on the video. I, I believe that, you know, he showed up. He didn't know that, you know, wasn't involved. Um, he would have a good story about where Bomenko was when he showed up. Mm-hmm. He yes. was an interview by the IRB. You should put that interview on your wish list. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let me, um, let me yes. just do one thing for people who are listening. I just want to play that. We played that piece of audio before, but we're just going to have a quick listen so people can hear it because it's very interesting. So mm-hmm. we're just going to play it right now and then we'll come back. So, anyway, so. I mean, you're really making a compelling case that absolutely that, nothing, that the RB sort of narrative, let's call it a narrative at this point, was was realigned to fit, you know, their conclusion to suicide. But it doesn't add up. I mean, if they took those things out of sync, that's pretty fundamental. I mean, once that's out of sync, that kind of sinks their case a little bit, doesn't it? I think so. I, I they, they did not give a good reason for why it was out of sync. They believe that whatever happened was happening in the lot. Maybe they watched the video from enough of a distance that they thought, well, he's running into the lot. So, it ha- you know, it has to be out of sync. There weren't shots before because he's running, but he's not running. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the part about Bominka crossing over to the crime scene and them leaving that out, and they leave it out so strategically if you read it, the fact that they also leave out Bomenka's 911 call and they leave it out strategically makes me think that they knew what they were doing. I'm not saying that they were lying or covering up a murder. I'm saying that they were trying to sell a story and avoiding information. So there's another thing you talk about in the video, like there's a shadow that you think might have been another person, right? Did I interpret that correctly or is that? I believe that there are two figures. You know, I, I recommend you like, you know, read the article, like I said, Absolutely. watch all the video clip it, clippings definitely. and then do it yourself. But um, there are definitely two human-shaped shadows yes. in the area. And to, what time do they I'd enter the picture? One of them is the one who runs. And by the way, if I'm right that the audio and video truly line up, which is the evidence, then that figure is running just as shots are fired, so it kind of adds up. Mm-hmm. So one of them you don't see at all until the suitor collapses and then it mm-hmm. runs. The other one emerges to the left of suitor just before he collapses. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. Are they people or are they just weird shadows? Here's the problem I find. 
no disrespect to white male journalists, but a lot of, <laughs> not you. No, it's okay. No one likes me. Well, now I like you. <laughs> now we're good. <laughs> but funny enough, everyone that has read the article has contacted me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see. It looks like someone's running. I see what you mean. Oh, that's interesting. I have mm -hmm. to, or I have to watch it more closely. I don't see it yet. Three white male journalists, and I'm so mean, but I always bring this up. They contacted me and they were like, I just don't see it. I don't know what you're talking about. So it's kind mm. of like. And that like, is a unique blindness that they're suffering. <laughs> That's or very is it specific. The arrogant willingness to just tell me I'm wrong before they study. Um, yeah, uh, I would think it was more I, I think like it's the second one. white men thinking they're right and that if someone brings up something they missed. And it's journalistic. You know, There's a little journalistic ego there ego as there, well. Yeah. If you bring that up something like, that they well, missed. I'm not going to let this woman show me up and come up with evidence that I couldn't come up with on my own. Maybe. Yeah. That's yeah. what I, as a white male journalist, that's what I would think. I just thought it was a phenomenon. By the time the third one did, I said, hey, you know, you're the third white male. And then I realized, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is absolutely uh, legitimate, I can tell you. But so um, so I, well, I can't go as far. As, I, I call it the running man and the shooting man, whatever, mm -hmm. casually. I don't mm -hmm. publish that. They look like figures. Yeah. And they're moving and they give the the one figure gives the impression that Suter ran into the lot when he didn't and the other one moves in and out of the frame just before and after he collapses so you know make of that what you will wow that's amazing. and there's that's nowhere really, else the video is very really blurry tough. in general but there's nowhere else on the video that you actually can't figure out what you're looking at even when Bomenka mm -hmm. is in that blurry area he's just white when he leaves it oh he looks more like a person do you think right. he was pacing as they said or was he just I mean, they kind of try to make it seem like he's... Because they want to make it maybe seem like he was about to do something momentous. I guess that's... Right. Is that the point of them, the IRB saying he's pacing in front of this van? Yeah, it's some confirmation bias for people. Like, yeah. if you've heard suicide, suicide, mm -hmm. suicide, and then you watch it... Um, I, I don't know. I kind of got... It looked like a stakeout of some kind to me. Right. I don't deny. Like, I have no idea. But he was standing behind a van, heading to one side, and then heading... And then heading back. And then, you know, I mean, they, mm -hmm. I'm just saying they said it was pacing, but it doesn't look like pacing to you. Right. Interesting. Well, what do you... It doesn't look like... I don't know. I mean, you know, I think I had confirmation bias in the sense that I had read the report and was watching it, and they said, he, look, he's pacing from the van. And when and you look you, at and it... And then you see him you pacing, see him, because that's what like you're expecting to, pacing, to see. But now listening to you, it, it sounds like... Oh, there's a totally different explanation for mm -hmm. that. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't look as copacetic as they were trying to make it, even watching the video without, you know, without knowing what you have yeah. so incredibly brought up. But it didn't look as tight as they made it out to be because it still seemed kind of weird. But you know, I mean, there now are, at this point, I mean, I have like there's some significant issues with that report. One big thing is that they say, like, even on page one, I believe they say, well. Um, they, they mentioned something about the bullet trajectory, and they say it as if it's firsthand, but we know they didn't get the medical record. Right. So that's a real problem, you know? Yeah. Mostly they talk to people that are no longer with the department. Like, And then there's mm. that weird thing about how shock trauma first gave them the wrong entry that's point. That's what I'm talking about. Which is so, like, of all that's the people, shock trauma not understanding where a bullet entered. I mean, I guess it's possible in the, in the sort of the fog of war but still like that's weird let me the, tell you why i don't buy that because what I, don't you buy the fact that they didn't know where the bullet was or that they well i'll tell you I, it's a little more complicated the my first thought is that i contacted a couple the main thing is you could just contact experts they're out there and our local media god bless them but they're not doing that mm -hmm. i contacted a couple of experts in the trauma field mm -hmm. and they said we don't get involved in trajectory we know mm. we're not supposed to. Ah, that's the second thing is, yes, of course, entrance entrance wounds are much bigger, and you know they're not stupid about that. So I, and then the third thing is that um, the IRB reported that firsthand without actually seeing anything from shock trauma. So, wow, 
Um, so I was just curious whether or not you think the IRB did a fair job in this investigation. Can you can you make a comment just from what you've seen, what they what they wrote, the type of evidence they went over? Do you think they did a thorough job? Um, I'm curious. No, but I'm okay. curious. <laughs> the short answer is no. I'm curious to know how that went down. Like, I'm definitely curious um, what was going on in those meetings. Were they talked through the video? Because mm. there were some people. Um, Homicide chief. There were some big shots in some of those first meetings. Right. How much time did they mm-hmm. get with the video? Were they begging for the video and they got it at the last minute? Those are really that, good it's questions. It's clear, I think, that Daryl D'Souza believed, I think, that it was either suicide. Or wait, didn't it, did you write that Daryl D'Souza thought it was an accident or some crazy Somebody thing? else did. Someone else wrote that. that yeah, Darryl, that, that, I, I never got that. I heard suicide. I yeah. never got that from Daryl D'Souza that he thought it was an accident. But in your conversation with Commissioner Davis, he yeah. said that oh, he... Oh, well, that's a whole other thing we got to... Because, yes. you know, one of the most strange players in this whole thing is Kevin Davis. Yeah. Because, you know, he really believed pretty much firmly that it was a unknown assailant right mm-hmm. and his behavior was kind of strange believed is a good word i mean this is what he said yeah. um you know i'll tell you a lot of the work i was doing before the video came out was sort of the politics and the timeline and the way information came out so this right. is what i noticed about kevin davis on november I, I charted every single press conference down to every detail and plus i've been studying him for years and he has some like you made me notice this he sort of you could sort of tell when he's lying <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, november 22nd was a week after after Souter was shot, mm-hmm. Kevin Davis presented this whole big theory. It was no longer just we think he was killed by an unknown assailant. The audio proves it. The video proves it. The bullet, the bullet proves it. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember Everything. that first. I was there. You right. were. So yeah. it, was a, it was here's our whole theory. And then he said, oh, and by the way, he was going to testify the next day. <laughs> right. <in the> <laughs> FYI. You know, like just in the bottom of the note. text. Just yeah. a side note. Just FYI. So that was great. That was amazing. Yeah. And then, so all of that was clearly to distract from that. And then it was the day before Thanksgiving when wonderful mm-hmm. things come out. And mm-hmm. then, of course, later that night, the federal government was like, ah, uh, he knew for a while. So mm-hmm. then one week later, December 1st, that press conference, now he has no idea what happened. Could the FBI please take over? Right. Jane Miller is saying, do you think it was a suicide? We're not ruling that out. We're not ruling it in. But all we know for sure, and he kept repeating this, it could not have been because he was a witness. Nobody killed him because he's a witness. Let mm-hmm. me repeat. Nobody. So, but let me ask you something. Why do people die in Baltimore? Do cops get their guns taken away from them when they get shot? Not much. Do no. cops kill themselves in the line of duty? Almost never, ever. Do people get killed because of their witness? I mean, it's just yeah. right. Pretty, That's a good pretty point. common. Yeah, you know, it's pretty common. So Absolutely. my problem is that they ruled it out right. as an investigation. Well, no, that was definitely like unbelievable that he would say that. And you know, it's interesting. He told me in an interview that he was on the the FBI was on the scene and didn't tell him that day. And he kind of played this narrative, right, that the FBI has not been open with me so I've got to just hand it over to you because you're not telling me everything yeah he told me that he was on the scene and um we, and the FBI showed up and that night never mentioned to him that that this is what Davis is now of course I never got the FBI's side of this right. that they didn't tell him till the next day but the fact that he waited a week is just you know that's pretty that's pretty bad I mean in terms of like saying what would be his motive what would be the motive to withhold that information uh, yeah he says I didn't want to 
I, out of respect to the family, but you know, what about the community and the fact that you're touting this cop as being killed by an? Think about and how don't forget about locking down the community locking for, down the six community for six days, days. and checking people's IDs yeah. when they walked in and that out. That evidence of would Park. be somewhat probative to say, you know, I don't need to lock down the community right now. This case is deeper, and you think of all the things he justified saying a lone mm -hmm. black man, which is very dangerous, right? That you've Absolutely. got this APB out on just any black man in a in, in a black. That's a starter jacket, is so, what he described. Right. A black jacket with you know, a white stripe. It's just hard to understand why he wouldn't release that information and why he downplayed that unless he's trying to hide something. One of the things I found, this is the first article I wrote that I found very insidious, is that he um, he was really trying to push that Souter could have gotten his gun taken away from him and he could have been shot. And, and yes. this actually happens. It does happen to police Absolutely. officers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not ruling it out. I would actually rule out suicide before that for me, just based on the video and audio evidence. Mm -hmm. But um, he was so intent on pushing this that he had, I don't know if you saw this, but he had on... November 29th, he had body camera of a whole other case yes. released showing, look, and he used the same language. It happens very, very quickly. These cops get their guns. And that story is actually very disturbing to me and that they released that video. It's a kid just walking down the street. A bunch of cops just descend on him. They put, one of the cops puts his gun right near the guy's hand. Mm -hmm. And uh. then there's shots fired. And it's so upsetting, <laughs> but yes. it was evidence. And I, I experienced this with Freddie Gray of how far. See, I don't. I'm not friends with officials, so I don't want to get you guys in trouble with your friends. But these people will never talk to me because they will go to extreme lengths to make their case. Absolutely. Right. I mean, one of the things I think Davis was trying to do was keep his job by by making police seem heroic. Right, because he right. didn't want it to be, God, if this is more corruption. I think he wanted to kind of play that narrative. You had T.J. Smith. They did the whole funeral. Don't forget tweeting. that they turned City Hall blue they in honor of blue. his death. You know, he had the Twitter video of all the people on the side of the road. I mean, they put a lot into turning yes. this in, in, into a way. To a certain extent, you can't avoid saying to their own per, own personal interest of touting, you know, Baltimore police are out there risking their lives. You know, and he used that language a lot. You know, he was a detective doing his job mm -hmm. when some crazy Baltimore City resident and came and shot him in the head, which was, um, From our discussion, seeming less and less likely. Yeah. I mean, interesting. Well, here's the thing that, that I kind of came away, and I, and I made some decisions in my last articles to draw some conclusions. Maybe that wasn't perfect journalism of me, but um, first of all, video and audio evidence to me is more suggestive of homicide. If his collapse was before suicide, um, it would have been in full view. I don't know. I, the... He, he would have been, um, yeah, it doesn't add up. But the second thing I would say is that there's just so much evidence of cover-up here. There's other people at the scene. Bomenka's hitting the crime scene. There's so much cover-up. Yeah. And that's, like, why are you covering up a yeah, routine death? Yeah, what are you covering in... up, right. Well, there's two right. things. Number one, the information, the police probably have, our Baltimore Police Department has a reputation being one of the most dishonest police departments in the country and yes. the most dysfunctional. So a lot of the information we're basing, that you bring out in great reporting, is a lot of the information we're basing our conclusions on was given to us by this same agency that is under, you know, incredible amount of scrutiny. For yeah, being, it's under federal scrutiny, Department of Justice. I mean, you name it, right? FBI then, is still having ongoing investigations. I mean, this department's too, under a great deal of scrutiny. That when you go in front of a grand jury, it's a jackpot. I mean, you, anything can come up. Prosecutors can lead you any direction. Yeah. So that basically meant 
there was a big wild unknown for every cop who's probably been sweating since the gun trace task force got indicted hmm. because he was going to go in there and anything could happen yeah. and, it, and, it, and probably to preserve himself might have been willing to say whatever they wanted who knows what could have happened a grand jury is really a fraught situation right and, and so you're saying that other police officers who were well, possibly dirty had very good reason to be had, there was a great motive to get rid of him if they felt like he wasn't going to you know cooperate right? right and go in there and refuse if he wasn't to going to keep the blue coat of silence yeah you know maybe they didn't know i mean he could have he could have led this all the way up the chain which is where i think it goes with the gun trace task force so mm-hmm. yeah i mean most of what i hear in terms of actual suspects within the department are people that you know you hear things here and there mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't rule out the fact that jenkins hadn't taken a plea yet when Suter right. was killed and right. that this this indictment was sort of an extra effort to get him you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out as a possibility. And I think that in January, I know the feds were, I felt like they were trying to scream at us because yeah. they released something to Fenton, Justin Fenton, Baltimore's son, um, saying, like, we're worried about police and non-police witnesses. Absolutely. That was right. Used. I remember and let's that. remember one other thing. Before the whole thing happened with Souter, this case was kind of contained to the wiretaps of 2016 and sort of had a narrow focus. And, right. and Souter just opened it up like a yes. can of worms, yes. even by just being dead opened it up because no one had reported that before so he was like the person that said oh Mm -hmm. this wasn't they could have said before 2016 but it went back almost a decade after Souter you know it's hard to say where it would have gone but uh that's really interesting so you know so yeah you reach some conclusions so so what do you think is the most likely do you feel can you speculate i mean if you don't want to it's fine no, it's we okay. understand, i mean but. look based on the physical evidence that i've seen all that is is audio and video to me it looks like he collapsed in such a way that wouldn't be consistent with a suicide mm-hmm. to me um then there's a gunshot right after that I, I am curious to know if we have the full story on his wounds but mm-hmm. um it also appears to have been in full view of Balmenka and one, at least one, possibly two other people. So my, my guess is a homicide and my guess is a cover-up. And that's about as far as I could possibly right, go. Right, right. Uh, and, and I would also say that the way that the, the leads of the department, both Davis and his homicide theory and the people that you and I both know were saying suicide, that they were very actively trying to steer us away from considering that he was killed because he was a witness. Absolutely. And that is that like... Is, that is unassailable. I, I, think, I, I think we can absolutely draw that conclusion. Yeah, no, with, there's with, no doubt. With perfect safety. David said everything he couldn't say, <laughs> look over here, don't look over there. I mean, right. and, he, and he was like, look, it's, it's homicide. It's, it's definitely a homicide by a stranger, but I'll give you suicide. I'll give you a few points for that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, he, like, if we have to, we'll go to suicide. And then but, what did mainstream media do for a month? Two theories. Homicide by stranger or suicide. And what did people like Kevin Rector report? A third theory is believed by activists, but has uh, been largely dismissed. Largely dismissed is his words. It's so... By whom, right? So destructive. Yeah, yes. who, who dismissed yes. it? Right. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly, and as we said before, and I, I want to reiterate this, within the community, that has not been dismissed at all. Right. I mean, that's the main assumption. No, right? that's essentially him dismissing the community. Because as, as Stephen mentioned, we have gone and spoken to many community members and to a person they believe he was killed and that they believe he was killed by one of his own a fellow law enforcement officer yeah and it's really interesting one point um that has really haunted me about this is that they never spoke the rb did not speak to his family like how on earth do you come to a suicide conclusion without 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 finding out about a state of mind so i the irb's um 
pursuit of his mental state was the most laughable part of it to mm. me. There were two examples. One was that he had looked up a funeral home months before. So he only knew that he was talking to the feds a day before. So they went back in time. And the other thing is that they didn't come up with any other reason he was looking at funeral homes on his Google. Cops look at funeral homes, ask them. They do. They look up funeral homes. And he, they also didn't rule out that he had another funeral happening in his family. So oh that my was, goodness. you know, they didn't rule out anything. They just, the second one was, um, you know, they said that they, the theory was that he and Bomenko went to the lot the day before. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where's that video, first of all? Right. Second of all... What about dispatch, too? I mean, you know... Second of all, they said... Um, Bomenka said that Souter told him they were going to see a prostitute named Mary. And then the IRB said, but we didn't see any evidence of Mary. Mm-hmm. So this must have been a ruse so that Souter could plan his suicide. Maybe Bomenka made up Mary. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> right. I mean, how can you right. trust anything Bomenka says? I mean, obviously, Lotus notes, you know, detectives are supposed to write almost daily updates. I mean, if they would release those or at least if they would look at those, but they didn't give any indication they looked at that, right? Right. I mean, that's what that we seems. Have. I mean, they know they know that that stuff's in there. That That's ridiculous. If they that's why. I mean, and also they, they were being handed things by um, number twos and number threes that had already left the department mm. around GTTF. So you're going to believe everything they say. Maybe they left the department because they're worried about GTTF. Yeah. Has wow. anyone from the IRB reached out to you? Like, uh, of course, you don't have to mention any names, but has anyone Been spoken to you? Or, or... you know... Well, you know what? I don't. This happened. I don't. I'm going to sound like I'm bragging, but sometimes, like in this work, it's so lonely, and you know, we don't get paid much. So I didn't get paid mm-hmm. anything for this. So we we reach for whatever you know credibility we can. But um, after I wrote my article about the ballistics, that one kind of had an impression, and I sent it to the chair. Uh, chips or chip, yeah. one of those. Right. Um, and he wrote back and he said, we're going to be able to provide answers for you. And then that, a few days later, they said they were going to run another ballistics test. So I felt like maybe wow. I had a little wow. impact. That's, awesome. That's good to hear. Possibly. I think you did. I think you did. Who yeah. knows? But their mm-hmm. ballistics test, I thought, was pretty weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah, sure. Sorry to go no, on. No, no, no. no, it's <laughs> no, okay. no, no, no. this case. I no, no, no. It's, no, it's great. No, this was we valuable really information. I mean, because, you know, we, there's been a lot of interest in it and... You know, we, and people in the community want answers. And yeah. I feel like even though you have raised a ton of questions, I, I feel like they're, they're honest questions that are showing people yeah, good where the cover-up is. Really and reporting. I think people can appreciate that, even yeah. if you don't draw a solid conclusion as to what happened to Detective yeah. Sean Suter. That's, I think yeah. people appreciate the cover-up being removed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and the implications of it are just profound. I mm-hmm. mean, if this turns out to be a cover-up and we don't, we don't unearth it. I mean, how are you ever going to reform this department it's beyond repair at this right. point? I mean, if right. there's even a hint that this could be, uh, you know, corrupt. So, like them. Well, yeah, one of the reasons I was able to head in this direction so quickly and persistently was because of the work that we did on Freddie Gray. And a lot of that was my partner Amelia's work with the videos that were released and being mm-hmm. able to see that they were manipulated. Yeah. So immediately we're thinking, let's make sure this video wasn't manipulated. But... Um, a lot of the same player, and we actually have an understanding of how we believe Freddie Gray died, which was not reported. It was, you know, he was thrown headfirst into the van at stop two. Witnesses saw it. Mm-hmm. Those witnesses were not, um, their their statements were not given to the medical examiner. Yeah. So mm. because of that, and I'm, we're still trying Terrible. to get that truth out there. So um, that's what, it, it's the same folks. It yeah, was Davis. Sure. It was Branford. It's the same people. Yeah, They're up absolutely. to their same tricks, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> No, it wow. is all the same people. It is all the same people. And I, I look forward to hearing more about yeah. your investigation into the death of Fred Gray. So, Absolutely. 
Uh, Justine, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for your time. It was time. really a great yeah. discussion. And thank you it. for this great journalism. And we Justine appreciate Justine Barron it. is an investigative journalist, screenwriter, and nonprofit consultant. She co-hosted the po- podcast Undisclosed, The Killing of Freddie Gray. And I would urge everyone to read her investigation in the Jewish Journal, right? Is it jewishjournal.com or how, how would they yeah, get Yeah, you could um, look up The Impossible Story. The Impossible Story. Called. Yeah, by Justine Barron, who's done some great work. Here, and we are very much appreciative of you sharing it with us. Okay? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved and our discussion with Justine Barron. If you have a case you want us to explore, please feel free to contact us through our Facebook page, Baltimore True Crime, and our website, landoftheunsolved.com. If you want to read more about unsolved murder in Baltimore and beyond, Stephen and I have written three books about the subject, all available through Amazon.com. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, You Can't Stop Murder, Truths About Policing in Baltimore and Beyond, and The Book of Cop, A Testament to Policing That Works. The Land of the Unsolved was written and produced by Stephen Janis and Teagram for A Spectrum Productions. We record at the Moose House studio, and our engineer is Ryan Escalopio. Remember to visit the website for our sponsor, Spot Crime, America's number one crime mapping company. Go to spotcrime.com, type in your address, and the Spot Crime Mapping Service will give you the latest info regarding crime in your neighborhood or anywhere else for that matter. The best part, it's free. So be sure to check out spotcrime.com because safety begins with knowing. And be sure to listen to our next episode where we will resume an investigation into the unsolved Lake Cornu. And I'm Taya Graham, and thank you for joining us for the land of the unsolved.